as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me into Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, looking at verse 26 through 38. And all Advent, our theme has been the theme that Jesus told to Zacchaeus when he came to his house. And he said, today, salvation has come to this house. So we're looking at the theme of salvation. In Advent, we celebrate the coming of salvation. It's coming, not just to our house, but into our world. And that is the great theme of Luke's gospel. And so in chapter 1 and 2 of Luke's gospel, uh, what Luke is doing is in a lot of ways, he's striking the first note of what's going to be this massive symphony, a symphony singing the song of celebrating salvation. And so the major goal in chapter 1 and 2 for Luke is to set the stage on who the Savior is, why does he come, what do we need, you know, how does he uh, get here. And as, oh, the way Luke frames it is he frames it with what is you know, probably the most appropriate thing, but with music. And so you know, think about what actually makes Christmas Christmas. I mean, probably the most important thing is what we're going to celebrate next week, which is the cookies. The cookies make Christmas Christmas. But then, you know, almost as important uh, is the music. And you think about one of the great dilemmas is when do you actually start listening to Christmas music? Do you have to wait till after Thanksgiving? Or my personal preference is to listen to it all year long because I love it and it's so rich and beautiful. But it's it's the music. And Luke frames the first two chapters around these songs, the original, original Christmas carols, the song that Mary sings to celebrate the coming and the song of Zacharias and the song of Simeon and the song of the angels. And they're celebrating the salvation that has come. And so what I want to do this week and next week is we're going to look at the song that Mary sings. And our goal is to figure out how can we make her song our song? How can we um, have her response that motivated the song become our response? Because if you think about it, the real challenge with Christmas is that the Christmas season is all about certain emotions. It's all about joy. It's all about peace, goodwill among men, and hope and celebration. But all of those emotions, none of them can be manufactured. None of them can be purchased. None of them can be bought. All of them are gifts that you have to receive. And so we're going to ask, all right, how can we receive the gifts of joy, the gifts of hope, the gifts of peace? And so we want Mary's song to be our song. But this week, I want you to think about, all right, what did she do that prepared her so she is then able to sing this kind of song that we celebrate, the Magnificat, one of the greatest songs ever written. So what did she do to prepare her to sing this kind of song? And, you know, if you think about anybody who's kind of a public performer, many of them have kind of pre-performance rituals that they go through to prepare them uh, for their, their performance. So, for example, Stephen Colbert, uh, before he goes out on stage, he uh, slaps himself in the face twice, 
And then he has a very specific type of Bic pen that he chews on the cap. And then once it gets sufficiently chewed, he takes it and puts it back into the box. And then he'll get a new box once every pen in the box is chewed. And that's how he's ready to go on stage. Uh, John Legend has to eat exactly one half of a rotisserie chicken before he's ready to go on stage. Um, Chris Rock listens to the full Parliament Funkadelic album. Now, I'm not familiar with that particular album, but maybe, you know, so Parliament Funkadelic. And then when it's done, he drinks, he chugs a 20-ounce Mountain Dew and then does 200 jumping jacks as fast as he can. Now, I don't know what that sounds like to you. That sounds to me like that's a recipe for one giant mess. But that's how he gets ready to get pumped up to go on stage. You know, the great rocker Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, he has to meticulously iron his shirts and his pants, and then there's a special cup of English tea that he has to have for he's ready to go rock out. Kanye West has to get a haircut with a specific barber in a specific barber's chair in a specific place uh, backstage. Uh, Kevin Hart, before he goes on stage, he walks around and he says, everybody wants to be famous. And then the response to him is, but nobody wants to do the work. And that's how he gets himself pumped up. Everybody wants to be famous, but nobody wants to do the work. Leonard Cohen has a similar, but maybe a little more sophisticated way to get himself ready. He repeats the phrase over and over, pauper sum ergo, nihil habo, which is Latin for, I am poor, I am nothing. I am poor, I am nothing. Repeating that mantra gets him ready somehow to go perform and sing his song. So with that, right, what does Mary do that prepares her to sing this song? Does she have her own kind of mantra, her own anthem that she's going to say uh, to get her ready? So we're going to start and let's move uh, through the passage. But as John or as Luke is setting this up, the whole chapter one is meant to give us an overview of this salvation that's coming. And one of the things Luke loves to do is to give you two things that you're supposed to hold and compare and contrast. And you're supposed to look and see the similarities, but also pick up on the differences. He loves these pairs. In chapter one, it's all about the pair of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And we're supposed to look at them. We saw the initiation when the angel comes to John's parents last week. And this week we look at when he comes to Jesus' parents. And you're supposed to look and you're supposed to compare, see what's similar and then what's different? So the similarities, they're both born to godly women whose pregnancies seemed impossible. The same angel announces both. Both are told in response to not be afraid. Both are told that they will have a son and both are given the specific name for that son and their name symbolizes their mission. And then the angel gives them a sign to confirm the word of promise. Now, what are some of the differences? You know, John is going to be the forerunner to announce the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. John is born out of barrenness. Jesus is born out of an even more difficult impossibility. John is a prophet who speaks the word. Jesus is the word. John points to the way. Jesus is the way. One of my favorites is it says that John will be great before the Lord, and Jesus is just plain great. 
And so we look and compare the two. So let's look at this back and forth when the angel comes to Mary. And what I want you to notice, there's a back and forth, a dialogue. Angel speaks, Mary responds. Angel speaks, Mary's response. Let's look first at the angel's greeting in verse 26 through 29. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So here's the encounter, the, the greetings. And notice there's an angel, Gabriel, and he's sent from God. So God is doing the sending. God is doing the orchestrating. God is doing the directing. He's the conductor. And then notice how Luke describes it. The angel is sent to a city named Nazareth. Now, Luke is probably the most cosmopolitan of all of the New Testament writers. He's been around. He was uh, trained as a physician, medical doctor, very well traveled. And one of kind of the humorous things is like Matthew loves to call the, it's the Sea of Galilee. I mean, this is a sea. But Luke's been around the world. He's like, this is not a sea. Like I've been to the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea, the Black Sea. This is a lake. Luke only calls it the lake of Galilee. It ain't no sea. But what's interesting is he calls Nazareth, he says he came to the city of Nazareth. Now you remember, even people in that area would not call Nazareth the city. Remember how Nathaniel responds when he hears Jesus is from Nazareth? He's Nazareth? Anything good come from Nazareth? It's not a city. It would be like if you met somebody in the U.S. and where they're from and they say, I'm from the city of Narcusi. Say, city. Okay, like, I know the road, but are you sure that's a city? Oh, yeah, it's a city. It was incorporated in 1871. I mean, this is is the city. Uh, Okay, okay. And that's exactly what he's, somehow what Luke is doing, and I think it's intentional, he's dignifying this place that nobody else is going to dignify. And he's saying what, the the salvation is coming to the most unexpected place to the unexpected people at this unexpected time. His grace is for the lowly. And you see that as he comes to this young girl, comes to Mary. She's a virgin who's betrothed to Joseph to be married. We don't know how old she is. She's somewhere in the neighborhood, 12 to 15. The reason why you think about kind of how the world worked in ancient times, uh, there was no concept of adolescence. You were either child or you were adult. And there was no in-between. And the, the demarcation when you move from child to adult, if you were a man, is when you could start working the, the, the father's trade, in essence, full time, when you could work. And for the, the female, for the woman, uh, you became an adult when you could bear children. And so the way it worked is you would start looking at the, the girls, uh, their families would look, the, the euphemism was uh, the way of women. So you think about uh, uh, Rebecca uh, or Rachel, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Rebecca or Rachel, one, one of the two R names, it was Jacob's wife. Uh, and, you know, when she's fleeing from Laban and she hides the household gods and they're searching for it, she's stolen them and she wants to hide them and she sits on them and she says, pardon me, I can't get up, the way of women is upon me. 
And so you'd look, and once you began to see the first signs of the way of a, a woman being upon them, that's when the family would begin the negotiations for who they would uh, marry in the town. And then the husband's responsibility was to get the house, the job, the place ready. And then once uh, she passed through the way of the women, it was at the point where physically she could bear children. That's when the wedding would happen. So she's in that inter intermediate time. So puberty has begun, but not quite completed. So she's somewhere in that neighborhood. And then uh, the angel has come and is coming to this young child in the most backwater, backwoods location imaginable. And part of the beauty is that his grace comes to the lowly. It comes to those who feel they're not seen. It comes to those who feel like they've been forgotten. And then hear his, his words to her, greetings, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. And you kind of hear like um, what he's come to sue and he's come to, to celebrate her. Martin Luther in his, um, his paraphrase of his translation, uh, he paraphrases it this way, oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God and no woman who has ever lived on earth has been shown such grace. He's like saying, Mary, you are the luckiest woman who's ever been alive. And can you imagine what she's thinking right now when she hears that? You know, it's almost like little kids who look at other kids and, you know, they see somebody who has something they want or going somewhere they'd love to go. And they're like, lucky, so lucky. And that's what the angel has come and he's telling Mary. And can you imagine the shock where she's like, the luckiest woman ever to live. I mean, yeah, I just got these new sandals and they're pretty sweet, but I wouldn't say I'm the luckiest person ever to live. And notice he comes along her and we'll see in a second her, her response. But this is a famous greeting. And perhaps you grew up maybe in a tradition that would uh, repeat or pray this greeting on a regular basis. You pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. You know, it's a beautiful prayer, but can slightly be misunderstood. Because the point here of Mary, the way she helps us, she helps us not as a repository of grace, who then can dispense it. She helps us because she's a marvelous, beautiful example of someone who's the recipient of grace. So she's full of grace in the sense that she's received grace, but she's not full of grace that she then gives it out. She's not the source. She's the object. And what she points for us is the way we honor her and the way she helps us is by showing us who and how God gives grace to his children to people just like her. But no, she hears this greeting and she doesn't know what to do with it. She's afraid. Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting is this? What kind of greeting is this? And what was meant to be a blessing? This was meant to be a blessing is, her, is something that's causing her to be troubled and to stumble. It's, it's troubling. She's not hysterical, but she's upset. And what's intriguing to me is something has happened where she can't receive the blessing. And she wonders, what kind, of what kind of greeting is this? The answer is a really good one. The answer is that he's celebrating you, but she can't receive it. And I wonder why. You know, does she not believe that she's the type of person who really could be blessed? 
not worthy of that? Does she believe that God couldn't do it? Would she have been more comfortable with the critique? Something is causing her where she can't receive it. And the angel pinpoints exactly what it is. Notice how he responds to her in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do not be afraid. See, for her, fear is the real issue. Fear is what's clouding her eyes and clogging her ears so she can't see or she can't hear the blessing. She's afraid. And then notice how the angel comforts her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and on his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end." You know, I find this so fascinating because notice how the angel is going to comfort this little child in her fear. You know, we have the opportunity on a weekly basis to comfort little children in their fear. And I'm so struck by his strategy. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh, don't be afraid. I know I look pretty big and scary. I'm not going to hurt you. Or, oh, don't be afraid. You have what it takes. You can do it. You, you know, God has seen something wonderful in you. Uh, or he doesn't say, um, okay, all right, let, first let's breathe, breathe, find your center. He doesn't say that. He, uh, notice what he does. And it might be helpful at the moment like that to breathe, but that's not the solution to the fear. He gives her a mini Christology lesson. He teaches her. He tells her about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He doesn't say, all right, you're afraid. Let's empty your mind and find balance. He says, no, you have to fill your mind with who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He gives her theology to overcome her anxiety. Tells him his perfect work, the work. Notice what he says. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. You know, the beautiful thing is this is the first time that name is to be spoken in that context, and she has the unspeakable honor of bestowing upon him the name by which he will be known all throughout history. She gets the honor to put on him the name that is above every other name. And at the sound of this name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is the name, and there's no other name in heaven or on earth by which we can be saved. And she's the first to confer upon him the name that over the next 2,000 years, millions of people in their fear and in their anxiety, in their doubt, in their worry, they will cry out to this name for hope, for healing. You know, it's impossible, or it's hard for me to believe, but the story I'm about to tell you is almost 20 years old, but the year is 2005. It's Christmas break. Cynthia's a senior at UCF, been getting ready for her last semester. I'm in my third year at RTS. And uh, Cynthia and I had met about a year and a half before, and the way I like to tell the story is that for me, it was love at first sight. For her, it took a good bit longer. 
and we finally got into that longer, about a year and a half, I've just been wearing her down, wearing her down, and finally before Christmas break, got her to actually admit, like, you have to admit, we're actually dating, you do know that. And she admitted it, and then uh, we had Christmas break, and we were gone, and, you know, it was the whole two weeks, we were on break, and, you know, every night we're talking on the phone until, like, two in the morning, and, you know, like, dad's hitting the thing, like, hang on the phone, what are you on there so long, what are you talking about, and, you know, that kind of thing, and uh, I'm getting ready, Christmas break isn't even over, but I'm ready to get out of Atlanta and come back to Orlando, it's the only time in my life I've been excited to come back to school. And so I'm traveling from uh, Atlanta to Orlando uh, in my beloved 1998 Nissan Maxima, just cruising down the road, living my best life, playing drums on the steering wheel, just rocking out, bebopping. And about halfway in between Tifton and uh, Valdosta, come over a little hill and I look up and I don't just see brake lights, I see cars stopped. They are stopped. And I slam on the brakes and I lock them up and come skidding. And, and yet, it always intrigues me the things that come out of your mouth in the moments of, of stress. And you know, in that moment, there was only one name that I cried out to for help. And do you know what name it was? I mean, it wasn't the name Mama, it wasn't Cynthia. At the time, there was a lot of political upheaval, and the, the, the name, it wasn't Barack Obama, help me. It wasn't George Bush, help me. In that moment of fear and terror, there was only one name that I cried out to. You know, at the moment, there would have been a log truck that had lost part of its load, and I was right in the middle of about a 40-car pileup. And in the moment of fear, doubt, worry, there's a name, and millions of people have cried out to that name, Jesus, help me, save me, be with me, I need you. And she's the first in her moment of fear to hear the very name that millions will cry out to in their moments of fear. But you know, the beauty of that name is not just the first name we cry out to when we're afraid. It's also the first name we cry out when we're overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness. Like when you don't know who to thank, it's the name that comes bubbling to the surface. It's the name you cry out when you're in the hospital room holding that perfect newborn child. It's the name I'd cry out in Thanksgiving and about a year later when we were actually married. When we were in... Uh, Alabama, our first year, you know, small town Alabama. And, you know, small towns can kind of be hard to, to crack in if you're not from there. And so we were always going to be outsiders. But the way kind of the rhythm of the town worked is it was around the local high school. So its events were the key events, you know, the football games, the basketball games, homecoming, graduation. These were the, the key town events. And the first graduation that we were there, um, I went but couldn't really, you know, find a place. I was kind of outsider. So I was kind of sitting on the, on, on the outside. And then uh, a couple minutes later, there was another uh, young girl, a young African-American girl about my age, kind of came in. And I could tell that she was also not really wanting to be seen, did not feel comfortable, wasn't really uh, an insider. And so her and I just kind of sat on the edge and just kind of smiled and had this bond. We're, we're mutual outsiders here. And as the, 
the graduation ceremony was progressing. She kept getting more anxious and more, was kind of like rubbing the seat and getting, and then saw a young man kind of come up on the stage and start walking across and she gets so anxious and then come and come and when they, they said his name and I don't remember his name it was like you know congratulations like Tredarius Martin you you know had this and once he got that diploma in his hand she just collapsed and went oh thank you Jesus thank you Jesus and then she looked at me with a beautiful beaming smile and I smiled it was like ah he did it you did it he did it and she uh 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 he did it <laughs> He did it. Yeah, he did it. And in that moment of overwhelming gratitude, there was only one name she could think to thank. It's this name. And Mary has that tremendous privilege of being the first to hear that name and to be the one who's going to confer onto him the name that millions of people will cry out in their agony and in their ecstasy and joy. His name. And then not just his name, I love this, he will be great, full stop. Not like John's going to be great in the, in the sight of the Lord. He will just be great. And this is one of the great Old Testament declarations that God is great and greatly to be praised. His wisdom is great. His works are great. His power is great. His mercy is great. Great is thy faithfulness. And he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. That's David in the Psalms favorite expression for who God is, the most high. He will be his son and the Lord's going to give to him the throne of his father, David, the reign over Jacob's house and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And what she hears to bring comfort to her is not really anything about her. It's all about him and who he is. And then notice her question in verse 34, just an honest question. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be? I find it interesting to contrast, you know, Zechariah's question. Um, Zechariah questions the angel too, and then he gets, he gets punished and Mary doesn't. So it's interesting. What's the difference? Zechariah's question, maybe there's something because he says, how will I know this? And Mary just says, how will this be? So maybe there's an element where she says, I believe you, but I don't know how this is going to happen. You know, Mary's well aware of the obvious physical limitations that can keep her from having a child. It reminds me of one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is... uh, C.S. Lewis was in a room in, in Oxford, and a kind of upper level room, and he was with one of his fellow Oxford Dons, and uh, there was a group, it was during Advent, during Christmas season, and there was a group Christmas caroling kind of down in the street, and they could hear the carols, and the, the fellow professor looked at uh, C.S. Lewis and said, oh, aren't you glad we're not like that rabble who thinks a virgin can have a baby? And C.S. Lewis' response was, well, I think they know that virgins can't have babies. That's why they're singing about the one who did. <laughs> they're aware of the limitations. That's why this is the moment that's, you know, broke history in half. They're aware. Mary's very aware of her limitations. So what then is going to be the solution? The answer, notice how the angel, he responds to the difficulty, the problem. He says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, 
the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. See, there's a power in the promise. The, pr the power is that the Holy Spirit, God's active presence is now going to descend and it's going to overshadow you and it's going to indwell you. And Luke loves these parallels, the same parallel just at creation, the Holy Spirit hovered and descended. And then now at the incarnation, it's the Holy Spirit who hovers and descends and then also parallels with recreation. And this is a parallel with Acts chapter two, just like when the church is created and when it's born, it's because the Holy Spirit overshadows it and comes down and indwells and empowers it. And the beautiful thing about Mary's life is in some sense, she's not unique. We all now are God bearers, all of his people. And what the church is, what we're trying to do here as a church is we're trying to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring the body of Christ into the world, into this place. And that's exactly what Mary did. That's exactly what we do. Uh, we're calling as a church. That's your calling as a Christian, to have the Holy Spirit overshadow you, indwell you. So now you bear and bring Jesus into every place where you are, into your family, onto your street, into your office, into your classroom, into and onto your playground, onto your team. We, just like Mary, are the God-bearers who bring him into the world. And just like her question is, how can this be? The power comes from the Holy Spirit, and the promise is that nothing is going to be impossible with God. You know, this is so close to the American gospel. You know, we're Americans, we're optimistic people. We can believe you can do anything you want to do. If you set your mind to it, you can be anything you want to be. And we say nothing is impossible if you just dream or nothing is impossible if you just uh, be true to yourself. So it's so close, but so far away. Notice what he says. Nothing is impossible with God. God is the determining factor. He's the decisive factor. With him, nothing is impossible. And do you believe that there's nothing impossible with him? What he's come to do is to do the impossible. He has come to heal broken hearts and make the blind to see. So if you think I'm too sinful, I can never be forgiven. Or I'm too broken, I can never be healed. Or I've tried too many times and I never can change. What is impossible? He's come to do the impossible with him. There's no family that can't be restored. There's no physical needs that are too great. There's no financial situation too dour, dire. There's no work that's too hard, no ministry that's too impossible with him coming. And there's no sin he can't forgive. No brokenness he can't heal. No relationship he can't reconcile. You know, no darkness he can't break with light. No sorrow that will last where joy will not come in the morning. And what he's come to do is to bring life into impossible places, to make the barren bring life, to make impossible places live. And so maybe you're here this morning and your hope has died. It's not impossible. He's come to resurrect it. Or maybe your faith has died and he's come to resurrect it. Or your love has died and he's come to resurrect it. 
And one of the beautiful things about his people is that whatever burden, whatever situation where we feel like we're in and this is impossible, he has come to do the impossible. And he's given you a family and a people to do it with. One of the habits we want to get in regularly is have people who are up here always praying for you. So if you've come this morning and you feel like this is an impossible situation and I need someone who will pray with me, Steve Hurd and then people from his class will always be up here on the front at the end of each service and they'll pray with you and you can come. This is an impossible situation. Uh, will you pray with me? Or if you'd like to share it, you can put it back on the connect card and you can put it in. And we have people throughout the week who pray over these things. What impossible situation do you feel you're encountering? He's come with God. Nothing is impossible. And then notice her response in verse 38. And this is the beautiful response that's going to put her in a place where she can experience all of the emotions and joys and things of Christmas. This is going to put her in a place where she can really sing her song. This is a so much, uh, a much better preparation strategy than Mountain Dew and Jumping Jacks. Or it's a much better preparation strategy than saying, you know, everybody wants to be famous and nobody wants to do the work. This is much better. Notice what she says. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me. Let it be to me according to your word. And this really is one of the great confessions of faith in the entire Bible and all of history. And the key is that she will simply take God at his word. She doesn't raise any objections. She doesn't hold out for an easier assignment. She doesn't ask for clarifications or qualifications or explanations. She's willing to trust him for the impossible and then to obey him without hesitation. And I love comparing Mary, you even compare her to other biblical heroes. And in some sense, she's so much stronger. I mean, think about when God came and called Moses. Moses is a lot older and a lot more qualified, and he also has a lot more objections and a lot more hesitation. Think about when God comes to call Gideon, and Gideon's a lot, he at least physically is a lot stronger than she is, and he has a whole lot more hesitation. Or even when God comes to call Jeremiah, Jeremiah is about the same age as she is, and he's very hesitant and reluctant, says, I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, I can't do it. And then here is this remarkable willingness. Let it be unto me, according to your word. Your will is my peace. And then you think about all that she was willing in that moment to give up. I mean, she's taking that kind of her hands off the reins of her life and holding it up and saying, I'm yours. And she, in that moment, has to be willing to give up Joseph. She doesn't know if he's going to stay with her and take her as his wife. She has to be willing to completely give up her reputation. You know, small town gossip is insidious and it's going to come and, and it's going to linger over Jesus and her her entire life. She has to be willing to embrace the pain. She has to embrace the uncertainty. She doesn't know it, but she's about to get bounced all over the Middle East as she is going to travel from here uh, up north to see her uh, uh, aunt and then travel to Bethlehem, then exiled in e Egypt. And it'll be years before she gets back home. She has to be willing to embrace this fog of misunderstanding, not really understanding who he is and what he's come to do. And then she'll have to be willing to embrace and endure watching her son be misunderstood, publicly slandered, go through an unjust trial, savagely beaten, and then slaughtered in public view. All of these things she has to be willing to embrace. And her response is, let it be unto me 
according to your word and according to your will. Trusting God. And she takes upon the title, I am your servant. You know, all throughout the Bible, the highest title of uh, honor that's given to anyone is the servant of the Lord. And she takes willingly, takes that honor. So are you willing this morning to give it to him, to be his servant, to surrender to his will and submit to his word? Are the things you're holding on control to? Not really willing to put it into his hands, but trying to bend it to your own will. Willing to live for God no matter what other people may say or think. You know, one advantage that Mary had is she had an angel who came to deliver this message to her. Unfortunately for you, you don't ever get angels. You just normally get me. But it is my great honor and privilege every single week to come and declare to you and to bring you the message of who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he's promised to bring and to give and tell you about that name, that matchless name under which no other name uh, salvation can be found and no other name. And see, Mary was willing to put her life into her Savior's hands, even though there was so much she just didn't know. And we have the tremendous advantage of being able to look back and say, we have more reason than she did to put our life into our Savior's hands because we can see them. They're nail pierced and they were nail pierced to redeem us. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And why you can trust me with your body and your life is because I've given mine for yours. I will be broken so you can be made whole again. Then he took the cup. He says, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This is your pathway back in. This is why I've come to bring salvation. And this is the price that I willingly and joyfully pay so you can experience life and death can make it, life can come out of death. So Lord, we praise you for the remarkable example that we see in this remarkable young woman. We thank you for her openness and willingness to be obedient. But we, above all, we praise you for that matchless name, the name that's above every other name, the name that we can cry out to in our moments of heartache, and you are there, the name that we cry out to in our moments of joy and thankfulness, and you are honored. And so I pray for everyone who's come into this room and here right now, you've promised that in your name, you will give grace uh, in our time of need. And every one of us has different types of needs where we need your grace. So I pray that you would provide it. If there's anyone who feels like they are right now battling an impossible situation, pray that you would encourage them, help them to properly look towards you and to lay it uh, in your hands and at your feet. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.